Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Kiran Vangavetti, who is the founder and CEO of Blue Sapphires Technology. And we're going to talk about the current threat landscape, um, some of the different trends in cybersecurity. And we might also get into something totally different, talk about Kiran's uh, adventures running marathons. But first off, let's welcome Kiran. Kiran, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast, Mark. My pleasure. And where are you located today? Today, I'm in Hyderabad, India. So I have a question for you, because I can never really figure out um, Indian time zones. And I mean, you, you first off, there's just one time zone for all of India. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. And I think it's Indian standard time. Is that what it's referred to? Absolutely true. Uh, okay. So I'm in the U.S. and we have three, four different time zones, and and some states um, do daylight savings and some states don't, so it's really a mess. Um, explain to me this, why is the, as far as I know, it's the only country um, or time zone where you're not exactly lined on the hour, it's on the, well, it's 30 minutes off of all the other time zones, why is that? So I think we've learned a lot from the countries that have uh, done this before. And uh, based on the latitude that we are, we took the closest one that runs through Calcutta, which used to be one of the heads of British when British used to rule. Mm -hmm. And that became the time zone for the entire country. It makes sense. And it makes as much sense as any of the explanations that we get in the U.S. when we ask, why do we have daylight savings? You know, why do we have to set the clocks forward and set them back two times a year just to mess with people? And you get all kinds of different reasons. Um, do you do you guys change your time? Do you have any type of daylight savings or is it always the same? Thankfully, it's always the same. So yes, we always wake up the same time of the day and go to bed around the same time of the night. Uh, yes, there is uh, early sunset and uh, late sunrises in the winters, uh, especially in the northern parts of India, it's more common, but uh, it still follows the same time though. Yeah, and I think I think we're, we're, we're working towards that in the U.S. Something, a bill just passed the Senate almost unanimously, which you, you, nothing nothing goes through U.S. politics unanimously these days. But everybody's like, we've had enough of this. So um, hopefully we'll get it passed and we'll be um, be on the same type of system that you're on there. But hey, that's not what we um, set up this call to talk about. We, we wanted to talk about um, your experience with cybersecurity. Uh, maybe... Before we jump into, you know, the, the kind of the current threat landscape, could you just give a quick overview of what uh, Blue Sapphire Technologies does? Absolutely. Blue Sapphire is the first unified cyber defense platform. So what we kind of try and do is security operations that is responsible for majority of the defense that happens in an organization is often burdened with trying to understand what each of these threats are, what is the context, how do we respond, how do we remediate, how do we detect, how do we get the context, how is triage performed. We automate all of those tasks under a single unified platform without having to rely on multiple tools. Uh, the idea really came to me when I was working with 
G Capital headquarters uh, with six business units under us. More often than not, it was not a question of um, resources or budgets. For us, it was more of a problem of capability of the tools we were working with, and the disparate set of tools we were working with almost made it a nightmare to get any data set out. So even when we detect a nation state attack, for us to figure out, is this the only one that we're seeing or are there others? And is this the only instance? Are there other instances? And did the attacker only reveal himself here? Are there anything else that he has done which he has not revealed himself? Uh, gathering that data took us days, if not weeks in most cases. Um, and that's what drove me to build that platform. So these can, things can actually be done by relatively much faster in a matter of seconds as opposed to the days and weeks. So that everybody, when we started, said that's impossible. Today, if you look at the security landscape, everybody is moving towards that unified platform. So we're happy we're on the right path. So when you say unified platform, maybe you can color in all the different components that you're talking about. I mean, typically, I mean, we've all seen the statistics that an average enterprise uh, works with 30, 40, 50 different security vendors. I think that number might be getting um, smaller these days. But when you talk about unified, you're talking about like bringing almost all of that into one basically platform. But what are the key components of that platform? Thanks for that question. Um, what we usually do in the security landscape is we divide this security defense structure architecture into two structures, right? A basic defense stack and an advanced defense stack. A basic defense stack is purely there to keep the noise out. It's like you build a wall around your house just to keep the noise out, the animals and the others out. It doesn't really protect you against somebody who is dedicated on jumping the fence, right? So the advanced cyber defense stack is really put in place to address those kind of issues. There, we're talking about some kind of a logging mechanism, centralized logging, so everything can be looked at. Um, in most cases, it's either a SIM or something of that sort. Understanding the network behaviors is another layer. Using machine learning, um, and artificial intelligence to understand the data points you're looking at, um, looking probably processes in isolation to understand what they do. In most cases, when an attacker attacks, you want to isolate the attacker's movements and try to observe what the attacker is trying to accomplish and understand the behavior and thereby start around figuring out how to defend yourself against that, right? So looking at the behavior anomalies within an organization to look for internal threats. Um, some, some internal employee trying to upload data out, uh, either by accident or by malice, and then figure out how do you respond and remediate at a very fast pace, which is your key to cyber resiliency. And at the top of the stack is threat hunting, where you're really looking for uh, indicators of compromise across your network. Uh, whether they exist or not, you're trying to get ahead of a problem before it ever eventually happens. Uh, these are all the different layers uh, of the advanced cyber defense stack. This is where the attacker, sophisticated attacker of today is playing. And that's what Blue Sapphire focuses on. That's that's a lot, and it's amazing that you're able to bring that all into one platform. Let me let me jump tracks for a second. I want to come back to um, Blue Sapphire's platform a little bit later, but let's jump over to what the current threat land, landscape looks like. Um, now, if you were talking to a room full of CISOs, what would you be telling them? Hey, these are the things that you should be concerned with most. If I were talking to a room full of CISOs, today the trend seems to be going after the shiniest and the brightest tool that most organizations can get their hands on, 
within the budgets they have. But what really CISOs should be focusing on, attacks are going to happen. It is a reality of life, right? And how quickly can you detect something going wrong within your environment? And how quickly can you remediate, respond to that problem? And how quickly can you address it? In other terms, remediate that problem. And that is far more important than spending your millions of dollars on going after the shiniest tool that anybody can come up with, right? And this is a very common theme we see and a very wrong approach to a security architecture, right? The age-old adage uh, architecture model of defense in depth still holds good today, right? You really should plan your defense in depth, not just your perimeters, not just your cloud v, uh, VPCs and so on and so forth. We're taking our archaic thought processes into the cloud also many a times, and this is causing inefficient use of the cloud and opening the cloud architectures for attacks also. And this is a challenge we see consistently. Focus more on the capabilities to detect, not necessarily protect. Protection is important, don't get me wrong. I mean, don't jump and choke my neck here, but protection is important. But while protection is important, you have to realize that protection doesn't always work. That's where you're looking at the vulnerabilities. These will never get patched. Some will get patched eventually, so on and so forth. These are actually tough problems to solve, right? So protection will eventually fail, but when it does fail, how quickly are you poised to detect these threats that are happening on your network? Because today's attackers are no longer uh, relying on downloading malware to your environment, right? It may be a thing of the past. Most attackers today already use the utilities that are available within your network. So it's like getting into your kitchen, stealing a knife from your own kitchen's drawer and stabbing you in the chest, right? So th this is what you really need to focus on. Figure out how quickly can you detect an anomaly within your network? How quickly can you resolve that problem? That is moving more towards cyber resilience, right? And that's what the boards are also today are interested in, right? The Economic Council Forum is also recommending saying that you need, attacks are eventually gonna happen. You need to figure out how quickly can you detect how quickly can you respond and how quickly can you remediate? Thank you for that. Um, I mean, you know, you make me think at, at what point are the tools uh, important versus the expertise? Because even in, with every tool, there are different settings and policies that you can set up. And when you talk about anomaly detection, for example, I mean, how do you describe or define anomalous behavior? in your specific organization. So let me ask you this, when when you're working with a new customer, how much time and effort is it to deploy your platform? Or I mean, it doesn't even have to be your platform, but how much attention should be on the getting the setup right versus just getting the right tool? Um, you ask a very challenging question there. The question is very simple, but the answer is extremely complicated because Majority of the times when we get into environments, um, we notice that they have not architected it right to protect themselves. And we do advise our clients when we see something missing there, when we say you need X, Y, and Z to address this. But all sudden, and tools will only, I mean, including, I, I'm a vendor, and I hate to be saying that, but no tool is actually a silver bullet, right? And case in point, we had a customer uh, to whom our tool was constantly throwing out information saying, I am being uh, attacked, and the customer never responded to any of that. And the tool has the capability to automatically remediate. They turned that feature off and said, no, we will deal with these things ourselves, and they never responded to it. 
And finally, one of our tools actually shut down the action of a ransomware as soon as it picked it up. And when you look at the trail, the, the marks were all over the place. The attacker has been going after their network for over two weeks before he finally got in. And every, every piece of information was right there. And it's more often than not the processes you put in place to learn your own environment, understand, and look at the data you're actually seeing and the skill to actually react to these uh, threats, right? Uh, a tool can only do so much, right? As a tool, I can give you the entire context in terms of Blue Sapphire, right? Today, you see a brute force, I can tell you, did you try something else before this? Or after brute force, was it successful in getting in? Or uh, I can also tell you what else techniques he has used and I can give you the entire context around it. But if you choose to look the other way, there is very little a tool can actually do for you. So the, getting the right processes in place, I think is the top priority for any security organization for that matter. And this is where most organizations are starting to learn that uh, they should actually move to a service model. And we are seeing a lot of shift in the security operations space where majority of the security operations, including L2 and L3 are being moved to a service provider and let the service provider handle all this. Right, well, and, uh, that, that I was actually going to be what my, one of my next questions was talking about security as a service. Uh, so does that, is it different depending on the size of the organization or the type of the organization? So I mean, I mean, just thinking, you know, for example, regulated industries, they probably want to keep that stuff in-house or is that changing too? We see a lot of regulated industries starting to change that, right? I mean, we operate a lot in uh, uh, the, re the supply chain for uh, Department of Defense. Uh, we don't work directly with Department of Defense, but we do work with a lot of vendors who form the part of support uh, supply chain for DOD. Um, and it's highly regulated industry, and they are comfortably able to outsource uh, because they've realized that they don't have the capacity to chase these. And we're talking about, when we talk about the supply chain also, I'm not talking about the tier one organizations, right? The Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000 companies, these guys already have built armies of people to go after this problem. And they have matured in a way that there is so much technology debt that they're not ready to change right now. That's all right. We are, our target segment is really the mid-tier, which is about 8 billion to 12 billion in revenue. Those are really ripe for, ripe for attacks and they're really not poised to protect themselves. And that's where we see major shift towards services in that area. And I think it is growing so fast that majority of the service providers are finding it um, hard to fill their order books. Yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting trend. I mean, it, it, it kind of runs a little bit parallel and probably a few years behind just just the movement to the cloud in general right i mean you're outsourcing your you know it's a, a big part of your your it infrastructure um and then now people are organizations are getting their mind around outsourcing security as well um how does how does a platform like blue sapphires for example work alongside something like um you know m365 microsoft's 365 or their o365 which have a lot of tools, security tools kind of baked into to that platform. Microsoft also has things like, for example, Intune for the mobile device management, et cetera. How, how, does, how does your platform work alongside that? And Microsoft does actually have a lot of tools, right? Azure Sentinel is something we compete with day in, day out at our client places. And we consistently seem to win against that because the per dollar value 
proposition and the visibility that Blue Sapphire provides seems to be superior. But I'll come to uh, what the key differentiation is, right? So if you look at different tools that Microsoft provides, a lot of them are very broad based. And a lot of work needs to be put in by a service provider to make them really operational. Because of the way the cloud operates, because of the way the cloud provider operates, right? So picture it this way, you cannot build uh, something that is actually relative to a particular vertical when you are trying to cater to the entire world using a cloud provider, right? That becomes a challenge. We are able to provide a very threat-centric approach to the problem. Now, Azure for that matter, and also AWS to a certain extent, has some of these capabilities baked in where they have the access controls, but who is monitoring these access controls? Who is informing? Who is alerting when these access controls are violated? And if you look at what Azure has in terms of Sentinel, it says, okay, fine, I can take data from A, B, and C, but what about those devices that are actually not on Azure? What about the internetwork traffic within Azure? What about the traffic between the data center and Azure? What about the traffic between the client and Azure? Who is taking care of that? What about the endpoints from where the compute is happening? Right, A large part of the data center compute has moved to Azure, but the client is still outside Azure. How about managing those? How do you manage all of this? These are very different challenges and they vary by vertical, right? If you're in a financial services organization, you look at this problem very differently versus if you are in a precision manufacturing, like catering to defense or somebody like that, or you're in aerospace or something like that, maybe healthcare. These are the challenges that we are able to address with ease in Blue Sapphire. Awesome. Let me let me ask you this. Let's say that I'm a, a, a newly hired CISO for one of these organizations that you said are between eight to twelve billion dollars. Okay, one of your target organizations. And I have just been hired. I really don't have any understanding of, you know, the 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 internal threat. Uh, landscape, what what exactly we have, you know, I mean, some some of some of the infrastructure has been diagrammed and kind of told me, uh, but what should I do first? What are the first three things that I should be doing to kind of get an understanding of what's going on and, you know, make sure that there's no major crises, in, you know, on the horizon? I think the first thing you want to understand is what are your ingress egress points and how does your network architecture work? What are your key assets? So asset inventory almost every single time uh, trumps everything else. You really need to understand what you have in place and there are multiple ways to do this, right? I mean, if you're an Active Directory controlled environment and compare that data set with what you're seeing on your network, you very quickly realize there may you do not control, how do you bring those back into control and how do you manage your rogue assets? And how do you gain visibility of what kind of traffic moves between your data center and your own network or maybe your cloud environment and your own network and what other kinds of traffic are you seeing? So the network visibility becomes one of the key points to start with because 99% of the time, you do not have any visibility or any understanding of the assets on your environment. The network is usually the only place that we say a single source of truth most of the time because anything and everything that wants to communicate will send something on the network. So start with that single source of truth. We have sensors that we can 
help you gather that kind of information and help you understand what is really happening within your environment without getting into deploying the entire stack also if you wish to, right? So we, we would make a beginning there, learn your environment, and then start moving one step at a time. Okay. A lot, um, of, a lot of people ahead. would want to talk about vulnerabilities and others. Yes, those are important, absolutely true, and you need to close those vulnerabilities as quickly as you can. You will never be able to stop those, but focus really on trying to understand what doors and windows do you have open and who has already used them to come in and get out. Okay, I think that's some excellent advice. Understand what you know, what's on your network, what are the key assets and um, and what activities uh, taking place. What about um, IoT? I think that's like probably the most commonly mentioned concern of uh, security professionals that I talk to these days is just, you know, I mean, obviously, obviously there's an explosion of IoT devices uh, and, and, you know, things that we didn't even consider a couple of years ago are just popping up and, and companies are using them in a, just, they're just everywhere. So how, you know, what's your, what, what are your thoughts in terms of how companies can adapt and protect I think NAC, network access control really speaks loudly when it comes to IOTs um, and identity management uh, really speaks loudly when it comes to IOTs. Managing the identity of the device, understanding the identity and then restricting that device based on its identity. Something tools like Cisco Eyes and uh, PX Grid do a good job of. Uh, those become the central focus point when it comes to IOTs because IOTs themselves have very little processing capability on them. They do represent a good amount of threat in terms of espionage, uh, not necessarily to perform any DDoS or denial of service attacks or something like that because they don't have the compute power. But they certainly do carry enough horsepower to probably perform espionage on your environment, learn about your environment, drop in eavesdrop on your environment, so on and so forth, and give a bounce off point from where an attacker can actually get into your data center with relative ease depending on how misconfigured those devices are. So I think a combination of a network access control and identity-based access is really the key here. Most organizations tend to carve out a separate uh, uh, VPN, uh, sorry, separate uh, VLAN for these and directly let them out without giving them any access to the internal environment. But that's changing, right? Uh, a lot of these devices have started giving us, I mean, uh, I think it's an age-old age, age uh, adage that um, convenience trumps security any given day. So the convenience these devices have started to provide far uh, trumps the security requirements that exist on them. There are some standards that are cropping up today, but today the best way to still handle it is carve out a separate network. Don't let it talk to the internal network at all. Um, only communicate what you can manage. So a combination of the identity and network access control is the key when it comes to these IoT devices. Makes makes a lot of sense. So so let me ask you, um, when you, when you go out and I mean, actually, t tell me a little bit about your business. I, you're you're active in the U.S. Where else are you active? So today we are active in the U.S., uh, Europe, um, mostly France, and Italy seems to be uh, really getting up. Uh, in terms of uh, businesses in the medium, mid-tier mid segments. And we're seeing a lot of activity in Middle East, along with 
uh, a huge appeal of investments in uh, the defense sector, um, in the Indian cybersecurity space also. And are the concerns and the the approaches and the questions similar across all markets, or do you find that some markets are more focused on, for example, detection versus protection or versus some specific types of attacks, or is it pretty much generic concerns globally? I would say the North American market is the most mature by far. Um, that in our experience and the clients that we're talking to in each of these markets, the North American market is the most mature uh, by far. And uh, the Middle East is just playing catch up. Um, the European market, their regulated, highly regulated environment makes them and strict enforcement of these regulations actually um, makes them uh, act more mature than their architectures really are. Um, and. Middle East, India, I think pretty much all of those countries are still playing catch up. Okay, so when you talk about Europe, obviously every company in Europe, they've got to be compliant with GDPR if they're if they're handling any kind of data at all. I mean, because if, even if it's not customer data, they have employees in Europe, they've got employee data. They, their GDPR is on basically everybody's roadmap. And part a big part of GDPR is, is having the adequate and adequate adequate, excuse me, defense and response uh process and tools in place um so what you're saying is is that you know that that kind of forces european companies to to uh, be aware and adapt the right tools even though the maybe the rest of their platform maybe not as mature as what you're seeing in north america yes yes yeah that is correct yes. right so because gdpr is not just a regulation right it is actually the law and this is right. the first time um i think first time ever in history GDPR specifically calls out uh, penal action against the data, chief data protection officer um, if there is a violation and the data leakage, right? They're, and they're personally liable as opposed to a, a fine or a regulatory fine or a slap on the wrist, which used to be the case before that. And I think New York has learned pretty decent with that, you know, the New York financial uh, regulation that has come into picture. Uh, is making CISOs personally liable and the CEOs personally liable for any data leakage violations. But of course, there's still the uh, question of uh, in New York, you have to prove that the due diligence of care was not taken, uh, which does not exist. That burden does not exist in the GDPR. So the action on the GDPR side is much higher, uh, mm -hmm. which is good. I mean, regulation always sells as a business. Uh, but far, what's more important is looking at security to really protect rather than just to adhere to some uh, uh, regulatory requirements. But as businesses go, uh, the priority goes where the regulation is. And in those uh, ways, we actually help customers reach a higher level of maturity uh, with a lower dollar value attached to it, uh, which really stands out because on a per dollar value, if you look at the value proposition of a unified platform versus multiple tools, um, the value is very, very clear, right? I mean, you can you can get access to the data, you can connect the dots much faster, you need less people to operate, these kind of advantages really stick out. And that, that really helps us because as a platform, you when you onboard an entire platform as opposed to point tools, you're not saying I'm going to do Y only after I do X. You're bringing the whole stack in, which is increasing your capability as a SOC and improving your maturity from probably a level one all the way up to level five. 
Uh, of course, there remains the case of the skill set, and that's where the service providers are very fast addressing that gap, coming in with that uh, shared skill set across the board, which customers can actually avail. Because it's not necessarily the requirement of um, the lack of uh, uh, money alone, right? The skill itself isn't such a big shortage today in the security industry. There are not many people to go around who know what they're doing. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you engage with new customers or potential customers, do you do some type of cost benefit analysis to say, hey, let's take a look at all the different tools that you're using, um, look at their licensing models, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, what, you know, what your TCO total cost of ownership is for that stack versus if we were going to run, you know, the Blue Sapphire's technologies platform um, and then factor into the equation because, you know, you, they're existing um, setup may require managed services uh, obviously if they're going to if they're going to bring in a, a new platform they're probably going to need some uh, s- some some consulting uh, services as well do you do you do that kind of service like a, some kind of uh, cost benefit analysis um interestingly enough uh, though we started out doing it in the last two two and a half years uh, where we have really grown very fast we have seen that the mit- customers have also matured Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the CISOs, the questions they're asking have matured. It's no longer uh, handing over the security of their organization. It's more about I want capability A, B, C, D, and E. Can you match that? Right. And can you do better? And if you can, can you show it to me? Prove it to me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take your word for it. Show it to me. And once I see it, then I don't care who you are. So we, it's been two and a half years. Nobody has ever asked us. What does Gartner think of you, or where do you stand in the Gartner quadrant? Or any <laughs> they have not happened, uh, and yeah. it is a it is a dramatic change from four years ago when we started. The first question anybody would ask was, "Okay, where do you stand in the Gartner quadrant?" And I'm like, "The reason I built the entire platform is because I'm tired of the Gartner quadrants looking at siloed approaches, which are not leading to results in a security operation center." But today we don't get that question at all. I mean, almost none. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that um, we would tell our customers when I was uh, offering security consulting services is that, uh, you know, improving your security posture, it's not it's not an event. It's a process. Right. And uh, it's a it's a journey. And so I'm going to jump tracks here and ask you about a journey because I I, I know, you know, in, in preparing for the show, um, some of the notes mentioned that you, a few years ago, um, decided to, well, lose some weight and, and improve your health and started running and that um, you've run uh, apparently over 12 different marathons, including, including the Boston Marathon. Why don't you tell, tell me a little bit about that? Because, you know, it's interesting. For people who are founding companies and running companies, um, and I assume you probably have family as well, right? So you've got all this focus on work, 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 and you know you have to be thinking about that 24/7. You also have your family, um, and and sometimes it's hard to um, to kind of balance and, and say, you know what, I also need to take care of myself. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey from um, you know from basically according to the notes here that you were. Uh, a bit overweight, and you decided, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in shape. Uh, a bit overweight is to put it mildly, yes. So I was at least 30 pounds overweight, and I've always been an asthma patient, and I did not know that. Um, and I got revealed, it got revealed to me, and really hit me in my face 
um, when I decided to go for a jog um, in Boston and near my sister's house, uh, there was a nice beach and there was a boardwalk, a long boardwalk alongside the beach. It was really a uh, wonderful day. And I went for a very short jog and I ended up wheezing like there was no tomorrow. I couldn't breathe. I went into an emergency and they said, hey, didn't you know you had asthma and you're not supposed to get out in the cold? And it came back as a shock to me and my me being overweight didn't help at all. So after my second son was born, I decided that I got to clean up my act and do take care of myself uh, for my kids. And I'd like to be around and I have two boys uh, who are uh, 14 and 11 today. And I'd like to be around and uh, uh, go to the gym with them and uh, enjoy their youth along with them. And I realized if I maintain my lifestyle, that was not going to happen. Um, it was really tough trying to train for a marathon uh, like everything else. Um, and uh, I think really the consistency and the grit really paid off more than anything tell, else. I never ran even a mile in my life. Never. Tell, tell me about it. A little bit about your, 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 tell me a little bit about your, 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 your plan. Like, I mean, because you can't just, if you're going to run a marathon, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to go and run 24 miles. I mean, or 26, it's 26.2 miles, excuse me. But you, you know, you've got to, um, you got to, what was, what was your process? So um, I decided to do something that nobody in my family ever did, and that was running a marathon. Um, and I started with the Couch to 5K program that's very popular on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I realized immediately that I didn't even qualify for a Couch to 5K program. I couldn't even barely do what they wanted me to do on the day one. Um, so I just really took it up as a challenge. It took me an entire year to slowly increase my capability to run consistently. And after a year, uh, there I was running my first marathon uh, in Connecticut, in Hartford. Uh, it used to be the ING Hartford Marathon. Um, and I never looked back after that. That's awesome, man. I mean, in just one year, you were able to go from from couch to 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 marathon, um, and it, you go ahead. No, I, I was going to say so. so the initially, the first three months were, I would say, brutal. The next three were like, wow, I can actually make some miles. And then you start preparing for your marathon, and then you realize that it is doable. It's just one leg in front of the other, and consistency pays off. Show up every day for your training, and it does work. Yeah, and I, I got to say, it's one of the things that I love about sports is that it's it's real and it gives you a reality check. And you can think that you're fit and you can t remember that when you were in high school and college, you used to do all these things. But when you get off the couch and, and go for that first jog, it's like it hits you. And it's nice to have that reality because, you know, in, in the in the work, in a professional life, sometimes we don't really know what's, you know what I mean? People, you get treated exactly. a certain way, the customer tells you a certain thing, and what's reality? But reality is when you get off that sofa and try to do do that jog. But the other thing I like about it is you get, um, you get real feedback uh, in terms of your improvements, right, and your effort and what you put into it, you get back out of it. I um a year and a half ago I decided to get into cycling and I just did my first my goal was 500 miles total for the first six months start off very humble that's you know less than 100 miles a month uh, but then my next six months I went up to a thousand miles 
and the next six months I went up to 2000. Um, and it, it just becomes a habit. And now, you know, now I'm doing like 400 miles a month, mostly on the trail and I love it. And I can look at my times and see improvement. And it, it, so it's like, it's like one thing that's real, you know, do you, do you use any apps like Strava or anything like that? So uh, I used to have a app called uh, My Coach from Adidas. Mm -hmm. I loved it before Nike bought it, and I'm just still <laughs> tied into. <laughs> so uh, nostalgia, and I still use Nike app. It, it's not really great, uh, but uh, I just got so used to that app now that I just can't look at anything else. Um, for more than anything else, I think right now my iWatch does everything for me. Nothing more, nothing less, and I'm not interested in looking at anything else. But one thing I have on my uh, to-do list is to jump onto Cycle and start pedaling. Uh, I haven't done that in a very long time. I really look forward to getting back to cycling because I think I'm starting to hurt my knees a little bit as I age. Yeah. And my doctor says, no, no, pick up cycling. It actually does the same thing it does for you and improves your cardio and everything. As you rightly said, right, I mean, it's very, very real when you get out there and it's instant feedback, uh, brutal instant feedback most of the times in the beginning and you start to enjoy the results of it very fast. Yeah, I, absolutely. Well, um, you know, your your results have been are, are definitely in, inspiring. And I, I think that to kind of come full circle on this, you know, having a a platform like um, Blue Sapphire Technologies that provides instant feedback to you know to your security operations team in terms of what's our status, what's the signal we're receiving, how we're going to respond to it, gives you that reality check. And you know you mentioned earlier that 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 CISOs um, and DPOs, for example, are increasingly becoming in placed in positions of potential um, responsibility, legal legal responsibility, possibly financial responsibility for, uh, for breaches that maybe they should have prevented or for reporting um, breaches that they didn't report, et cetera. And if, if I was in one of those positions, the, the importance of quote unquote reality and understanding what's going on would be incredibly important because otherwise I couldn't sleep at night. If I thought that maybe things were okay, just kind of like I thought that I used, I was in pretty good shape because I used to be able to run when I was in high school or college, I wouldn't be able to sleep well. But just having a tool that says, hey, this is the real situation is important. And I'm not saying that any tool out there can do that completely, but it's better to have something um, that that gives you a pretty good idea of what's going on than, than just kind of guesstimating. Does that make sense? No, absolutely it does. And as you're talking, I was thinking about my entrepreneurial journey. Um, and uh, I think uh, my years of running has really helped me maintain the grit it needs to push yourself constantly and stay in the game rather than drop out and finish it. And I think that's what helped us succeed because uh, COVID gave us a really big root shock. In 2020, when we were all prepared, we went all out and spent every penny we had um, into our SaaS. And then COVID hit, and the lean period started for about six months. Um, and we were like, oh my God, what's happening? Right. And then we started to pick back up again. And now we have, uh, I think, or 300% of where we were 
during COVID times. So I think we've done pretty well, and I think that grit pays off. And if I were to share one thing with anybody who's listening to this podcast is stay with it, show up, and it pays off. Doesn't matter whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an employee, whatever the case might be, or you're very career focused, or you're in sports, it's that showing up every day makes a huge difference. I think that's some amazing advice. Let me ask you this. If if any of our listeners want to get more information about uh, Blue Sapphire's technologies or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, we have a very attentive staff. and Or you can email me directly at kiran at bluesapphire.com. I respond pretty good to emails. I'm not a big social person with respect to other social tools, but I respond to my email very diligently. Awesome. Well, hey, Kiran, I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation and uh, impressed both with your business and athletic success. Wish you and your whole team a great remainder of 2022. Hey, thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.